Friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. This morning we're in Philippians 4, studying verses 2 to 9. And our message is titled, The Distinguishing Marks of an Influential Christian. Now it's becoming increasingly common to meet people who's, in our culture whose job title is a social media influencer. You could say we live in a day of influencers. But if you've ever seen behind the scenes of many of these influencers' lives, you'll notice that everything is staged. Their houses become movie production sets. Their living rooms have cameras at every corner. And microphones are hidden underneath everybody's shirt. And scripts are behind every word. Though their production tries to give the perception of authenticity, it is the opposite. And the result? Well, many of these influencers have hundreds of videos and millions of views. Now listen, I have no intention on offering a critique to social media influencers. But what I do care about is our Christian influence. If we're not careful, we can begin to view Christian influence like social media influence. Because we are a people that desires to see and influence those around us for Jesus' sake, we can mistakenly assume that the Bible gives us no instruction for how God calls us to influence our environment. And as a result, we can begin to mistakenly take cues from the culture on how to accomplish this mission. In other words, Christians and churches can unfortunately become people and places whose lives appear from the outside to be authentic and genuine and life-giving. But behind the scenes where you actually see, it's a performance. So if it's not by way of secret filming and scripted lines and production sets, how should a Christian seek to influence those around them? How should a local church seek to influence those around it? Well, that's what Paul tells us in our text this morning. He is nearing the end of his address to the Philippians, and now he appears to be circling back to provide some final instruction in conclusion to what he commanded them way back in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, where he said this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So in light of that command, making his way full circle to it in chapter 4, he provides this morning's charge. Our ordinary daily devotion to Jesus will have an extraordinary influence on those around us. No lights, no cameras, no stages, 
No movie production sets. No big budgets. Only ordinary and genuine daily devotion to Jesus. How about that for this morning's spiritual secret? As Alistair Begg says, it is the plain things that are the main things. And it is the main things that are the plain things. So let's turn our attention now to the best part of this morning's message, which is the reading of God's holy and inspired and infallible word. Philippians 4, starting in verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syncyte to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's take a second and go to the Lord in prayer to ask for his much needed help. To hear, apply, and understand his word. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just want to ask you a prayer straight from your word. But please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point this morning is the influence of unity. Verses 2 and 3. Let me ask you a question, friend. How big does a sin have to be to get God's attention? After all, isn't he running and ruling the universe? After all, isn't his mind filled with the names of billions of stars in the galaxy? And because of that, surely the tiny little sins of my life don't make it across his desk, right? Or do they? Well, consider this as our answer. In this section, we learn that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the Philippian church because of a tiny dispute among two women in a relatively obscure part of the known world 2,000 years ago. Of all the things that Paul had accomplished in all the churches that he had planted across the known world, 
<laughs> this tiny dispute among two members of Living Hope Church in Philippi had Paul's attention. But why? Well, the reason is because he knew that this church's Christian influence in the city of Philippi could be weakened, watered down, or destroyed by unaddressed disunity. So he says to these two ladies in verse 2 and 3, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. I entreat them to agree in the Lord. He says this, yes, and I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Now listen, we don't know what their disagreement is, but perhaps that's the point. Perhaps the Lord doesn't want us to know the disagreement so that we don't try to compare our disagreements to theirs and then find excuses not to obey the command. What's clear in this text is that their disagreement is well known in the local church. It's well known in the body. And as a result of their pride, neither of them are willing to humble themselves. I hope you're starting to make connections with this text to the rest of the book of Philippians because this is the reason for his writing and it helps us to shed light on chapters 1, 2, and 3. Remember back in chapter 2, Paul tells the church to have the humble mind of Christ who, verse 3, did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility counted others more significant Count others more significant than yourselves. He says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Apparently, these ladies felt so strongly about their perception of whatever the issue was that they were disagreeing on, that they refused to move towards one another in unity. Move towards one another in humility with love. But Paul wants them to see that the mission of the local church is bigger than their disagreement. And for the sake of the gospel, they should agree in the Lord. And what's important to observe is that their disagreement is not threatening their relationship with the Lord. That's not Paul's emphasis in the writing. He's not saying that their disagreement is threatening their relationship with the Lord, for their names are, verse 3, are written in the book of life. But he does want to make this point crystal clear. Their disagreement is threatening the church's influence in the city of Philippi. And for a missions-minded Paul, that is really, really important. Because we don't just exist to be our happy little selves in a local church. We exist to shine the light of Christ to a lost and dying world. Both locally and extra locally. Now disagreement is an area that the Apostle Paul was quite familiar with himself. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and his missionary friend Barnabas are mapping out their travel plans when Barnabas makes a recommendation for the upcoming mission trip, he says, I think we should take 
John Mark along with us, Paul? Well, because John Mark had gone with Paul and Barnabas on a, tre- on a previous mission trip and had, for really unknown reasons, taken an early flight home from the mission trip, Paul tells Barnabas that it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to take John Mark. Remember, remember Barnabas, the last time we took him, he bowed out. We were in a remote part of the world preaching the gospel to people who've never heard about Jesus, never heard about God sending and sacrificing his son for our sins. And, and John Mark bowed out. He's, he's weak, Barnabas. And as a result, Acts 15.39 says, And there arose a sharp disagreement. Whoa. <laughs> there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, and then they departed. So what do we do with this? What in the world do we do with this? Well, isn't it true that our failures are our best teachers? Years later, Paul's heart softened towards John Mark. And he considered him a friend and a partner in the gospel. Mark, this Mark that we're referencing is the same Mark who went on to write the gospel of Mark. So what's the application? Well, it's to admit that sometimes, even among God's people, personalities and preferences clash. And when they do, as they have done with these two women in Philippi, we should seek to do two things. First, we should seek to recognize that our Christian brother, our Christian sister's name is written in the book of life, which means that our differences will be resolved in heaven. And therefore, we should do our best to resolve them on earth. Two, we should as much as it depends upon us, try to live at peace with brothers and sisters in Christ because of the gospel, because of the reputation of the gospel, because of the power of the gospel. Friends, our unity matters. But praise God that even when we fail to be united, because we do, even when we fail God redeems. He used, God used the disagreement of Paul and Barnabas to reach twice as many people for the gospel. But friends, we must evaluate our hearts and do everything within our power to live at peace with one another for the sake of the gospel. Well, at least to our second point this morning, the influence of daily devotion. The influence of of daily devotion, verses 4 through 7. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book called Spiritual Depression, writes these following words. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in, in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. 
Well, in this section, Paul, like a clinical psychologist, sits down with each and every one of us and says, I have something that will help you handle your daily anxieties. And our response should, our response should be, I didn't know that you knew about those. Well, of course I know about those, since we were all beset with such a worrying condition. The problem, of course, is that most of us don't believe that God offers any real solution to help us with our, with our condition. But the Lord does offer real solutions for our very real conditions of anxiety. And he provides us with this therapy. Right away in verse 4, he tells us this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, at this point in our sermon series through the book of Philippians, we have firmly established the fact that the Apostle Paul believes that the Christian should have a joyful life. The Christians should be a joyful people. They should be a joy-filled people. And after all, Paul is writing this letter of joy while he is sitting in a Roman prison for the sake of the gospel. Not because he has committed any crimes, but because he has preached the gospel. The free grace of God in the sending and in the sacrificing of Jesus Christ. But I know some people who would prefer an actual prison over the one in their own mind. So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? To rejoice in the Lord informs us that joy is something that is outside of ourselves and firmly fixed in God, in the person of God, in the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your work or your progress or your possessions. He has discovered that the only hope for a happy soul is not to look within oneself, but to force the eyes of faith to look at God. And if rejoicing in the Lord is the first round of medication that physician Paul prescribes to a sad and sick soul, he also tells us how often we should take the medication. Always. Verse 4. Here's the medication. Rejoice in the Lord and take it always. And this joyful state of soul is meant to influence our behavior, as he says in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Or as the NIV reads, let your gentleness be evident to everyone. Let your gentleness be evident to everyone. Paul is appealing for our reputation among a watching world to be that of gentleness or kindness. Then he says these words, the Lord is at hand. 
which is a statement drawing attention to the imminent return of Jesus to gather to himself all of his people as he has promised in his word. And while some people talk about Jesus' return as a way to create anxiety, Paul wants this fact to alleviate our anxieties as Christians. He says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now look, at, look with me at all the all-encompassing words that Paul has used in this section thus far. In verse 4, he says this, always. In verse 5, he says, everyone. In verse 6, he says, anything and everything. I mean, he is laying on thick the all-encompassing words. Why do you think he's doing that? Because we don't believe that this is really going to help us. We really don't believe Philippians 4. We really think that's really cute therapy, but it doesn't help my real problems and my real anxieties and my real conditions. So Paul's like, listen, verse 4, always. Verse 5, everyone. Verse 6, anything. Verse 6, everything. I mean, he just can't get in our face more than he does in this section and say, this applies to you. <laughs> There's not a, a single corner. There's not a single crevice. There's not a single circumstance in our life that excludes the application of this command, which is really, really, really great news. So let's break down verses 6 and 7 because they really are some of the, some of the greatest medication as prescribed to us in the entirety of the New Testament. The command is, do not be anxious. <laughs> there is a hilarious clip on SNL where a therapist is sitting across the desk from his patient who is explaining her fears to him. And he is, because of the skit, because of the humor in it, he's obviously annoyed by her. But he draws her out by sort of fanning his hand like this. Waving her to tell him more. Yeah, come on, tell me more. And he asked her some questions, seeking to draw her out even more. But now it's time for the solution. He tells her that he has two very important words to give her. Two very important words that she must pay attention to and that she must immediately apply to her life. And she quickly thinks, oh, the therapist would give me two, two words. Like, wow. She pulls out a pen and paper. She says, should, should I write it down? He says, well, most people can remember two words, but sure. If you need to write it down, go ahead. And so she leans in expectantly. She's been, she's had this, she's been affected by this condition for so long. And she leans in, and he leans across the desk, and he shouts, stop it. Stop it. And she says, excuse me? He says, stop it. Is that what Paul's doing here in this section? 
When he says, do not be anxious about anything, no, of course that's not what he's doing. He offers us real counsel as he continues with the address. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. When we are tempted to be anxious about anything, Paul says that instead of allowing that anxiety to box us in our mind and shut us out from God and the world and His people and the fellowship of the local church, we should instead respond by immediately praying. And what does Paul mean by that word supplication? Well, the definition of this word surprised me. I think I've always thought that word meant supply, sort of supply, pray and supply with some form of literature or some form of maybe audible listening to God's word preached or something along those lines, which of course wouldn't hurt, but that's not what supplication means. The definition of this word is actually this. It is the action of asking. Or begging for something earnestly or humbly. So Paul essentially is saying, pray earnestly when you're anxious. Beg and plead when you're anxious. And through prayer. Anxiety is either a trap that causes us to fall into a hole of panic and despair, or it is a tripwire that forces us to fall on our faces in prayer to ask God for relief, to beg God for help. So how does anxiety function in your life, my Christian friend? God wants anxiety to function in our life as a tripwire. It causes us to come across it, for it to hit us at our ankles so that we will fall flat on our face, fall flat on our knees, flat on our face, and earnestly plead to God for help. Earnestly plead to God for relief, for answers. Finally, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The instruction to be thankful is the most often overlooked part of of this section, of this command. I think most of the time when we think of this text, we say, do not be anxious about anything but everything about prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known. We just forget the with thanksgiving aspect. But the instruction to be thankful is essential for the Apostle Paul. Now, we're doing our best in our house to obey this command in its entirety. As Paul says, in everything. For example, a few weeks ago, our little Andy woke us up in the morning with a huge blowout from her diaper in our bed. It was on the sheets. It was on the comforter. It was, it was disgusting. It was everywhere. 
I hope you're seeing a picture. I had to see it. <laughs> and that evening, as Karis was praying at our dinner table, <laughs> she said, and Lord, thank you for Andy, and thank you that she poo-pooed in Mommy and Daddy's bed. <laughs> Lord, thank you for that. And Sarah and I looked up and thought, oh, what a great application of this text. What an example of childlike faith that Paul calls us to here. Thank the Lord in everything. So, friend, do you have faith to apply this principle, to apply this command to your anxieties? Do you have faith to thank the Lord for the evidences of grace in your life while squarely in the midst of real anxieties? Though none of us will ever be free from anxiety in this life, Paul provides us with a promise that can sustain us through difficult days, months, and even years. He says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So picture this. As Paul is writing this last part of this command, he's watching the guards who are standing watch at his prison cell in Rome. And he realizes that peace functions to guard our hearts and our minds in the exact same way. That peace can function. That God's peace can function to guard our hearts and our minds in the exact same way. Peace is a gift from God. We don't deserve it. It is a generous and a gracious gift. We think we deserve it, but we don't deserve it. It is a gift from God. It's a gift from God that He gives to guard our hearts and our minds amidst perplexing troubles and challenges. And listen, this is important. This is important for me to say this last thing in light of this section. Though we won't usually experience the presence of peace immediately upon praying about our anxieties, we should and we must acknowledge the awareness of God's sovereign power that controls and ordains the outcome of all of our anxious situations. This, this is not, this is not a command that promises immediate microwave relief to all of the anxieties that you might experience and that I might experience. This, this is a promise this is a command, this is a call, this is a charge to believe that God really does want to give us the gift of peace. That God really does want to hear about what ails us. God really does want in our mind. Of course, He's always in our mind. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows all things and He's everywhere. But He wants us by faith to lay those things on Him. 
to talk to him about those things. He invites us. He, he wants us. He bids us. Because in our anxieties, we always shut down. We almost always shut down and block everybody, including God, out. And he's saying, you must learn, Christian. You must learn to invite me in. You must learn to invite me in with your anxieties to cast, Peter says like this, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. This isn't promising a microwave relief, but this is promising that at some point he's going to give you peace. Earnestly pray, earnestly beg, however long it takes in a season of anxiety. Well, at least to our third and final point this morning, the influence of practice. Verses 8 and 9, the influence of practice. Now, years ago now, NBA star Allen Iverson was being questioned by reporters why he wasn't attending practices on a regular basis. And Iverson famously said, practice, practice, we're not talking about a game, we're talking about practice. Now this statement is something that he mocks himself for saying to this day. But at the time, he truly believed, as he thought to himself, does one as great and naturally gifted as myself really need practice? I'm performing great in the game. Do I really need practice? The Christian life is not a life that is earned through our own obedience and performance and practice. We know that. I hope we know that. We must be reminded of that. Our Christian life was purchased by Christ and his death on the cross in our place and for our sins. We can do nothing to earn our salvation, but we simply receive it as a free gift of grace. But though our salvation is totally free, we have a responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Remember when Paul said that earlier in the book of Philippians? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We have the responsibility to practice our faith on a daily basis. So Paul tells us in this section how we practice, what our practice should look like. Our practice starts with our mind. Christian practice starts with the mind. In verse 8, he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. (laughs) Wow, right? There's Paul again. With all these all-encompassing words, like, whatever. And if there is anything. (laughs) Friends, since anxiety is a matter of the mind, we must deal with it by using the mind. You cannot fill the mind by osmosis. I tried so many times in undergraduate school. 
to fill my mind with osmosis, to just take a little power nap and lay my head on my books, hoping that after an hour's nap, it would sort of creep into my, my brain. And it never worked. It never worked. So Paul says that the mind must be transformed by thinking on these things. It must be transformed by thinking on these things. Now, that sounds a lot like another verse in the Bible, doesn't it? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, the same, the same guy who wrote Philippians said this in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what do we do with this rather long list of, of virtues in verses 8 and 9? Well, the emphasis on these verses is on thinking holy thoughts and avoiding unholy thoughts. On thinking holy thoughts and avoiding unholy thoughts. Now why? Why is this important? Well, D.A. Carson sums up the reason quite well for us with this quote. He says this, From God's perspective, the real measure of individuals lies in what they think. Not in what they own, or in how well they deploy their gifts, or even in what they do, but in what they think. If you think holy thoughts, you will be holy. If you think garbage, you will be garbage. So Paul says to us, think about whatever is true. Not, not false. Think about whatever is honorable, not dishonorable. Think about whatever is just, not unjust. Think about whatever is pure not impure. Think about whatever is lovely, not unlovely, not ugly. Think about what is commendable and don't think about what is detestable. If there is anything worthy of praise, Paul says in verse 8, think on these things. And there at the end of the passage, Paul provides for us another sweet promise. He says, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. So friend, tell me about your influence for Christ. Tell me about your influence on those around you for Christ. Do you daily demonstrate devotion to Jesus and trust that he will have an extraordinary influence on those around you? I hope in light of this passage of God's inspired and holy word, I hope that we all do. I hope that we all do. Well, let's close by going to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord, we thank you so much that in your kindness that you would give us a prescription like this. Like you've given us in Philippians chapter 4, Lord. You know that because we are fallen creatures, because we live in a fallen world, everything in our world is touched by the effects of sin. And because of that, we, we have anxious thoughts. We are anxious about little things. We're anxious about big things. Sometimes we're so anxious and we don't even know why we're anxious. But God, in all of those anxieties, you give us a promise. You give us a prescription. You, you, you summon us to really believe, to have faith, that you not only care about those things, but that you, you can do something about those things. God, give us that kind of faith. Help us. Because we are a people who are weak in faith. We thank you and we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.